This Tuesday, uh, I will have been married to Liz for 20, no, well, we got married on the 24th, for 42 years. Um, so that's the 24th of May, so it's kind of awesome. This has everything to do with my sermon, in case you think I'm meandering and wandering around. No, I'm not. Um, we, got, we met in, uh, what was it, Liz? Uh, was it 1979? It was, yeah. Uh, 1979, my dad uh, was a federal agent. He moved uh, to be the a district director for U.S. Customs in San Diego, so he moved from El Centro to San Diego, called me in L.A., said there's two beautiful twins next door. You need to come home, son. Check one of them out. I'm like... Number one, Dad, you don't pick my girlfriends, you know, and uh, so, he, so I did. I came home and uh, uh, saw the twins next door. Thank God. Praise God for that. Yes, Dad, you were right. I liked your sister first. Uh, <laughs> this is the second set of twins I ever dated. Uh, I dated a... You think I would have learned the other time I did it? Uh, Sonia and Sandra Schwartz. Uh, little German girls. Uh, I never knew who I was with on a date. <laughs> I'd have to ask her, are you Sonia or are you Sandra? I mean, huh? Was ist los? You know? Um, but Liz, uh, they, weren't, they were uh, fraternal twins. They weren't identical. They looked very similar. But uh, eventually, uh, my girlfriend broke up with me from four years. Her boyfriend broke up with her. Uh, and, uh, and I led Liz to Christ. Uh, and uh, wow, and it went from there. So we got married in 1980, May of the 24th. So it was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> it's gone by quickly. I mean, I mean, the older people always told you, yeah, you better enjoy the ride. It's going to buy fast. I used to think, like, what do they know? Uh, well, you, next thing you know, you're starting to get, get those, like I did the other day, uh, it's time for you to apply for Medicare. <laughs> huh? Are you kidding me? You know, that's when you know your life's going south. It's like, are you kidding? Um, and so I'm like, well, it seems like we just got married. Now I got this Medicare thing. Are you serious? Uh, so I would say enjoy the ride with your bride or your husband. It goes quickly. Enjoy it. But uh, what has this got to do with First John? Uh, a lot. Uh, because the foundational things for a great marriage are, are the same components of a foundational uh, relationship with Jesus. What makes a great marriage are the same kind of components that make a great relationship with Jesus. But I want to just go over some just some basic things about, well, like, what would be the tips I would give you? This is just extra stuff. Um, to, to have a great relationship that manages the, the ad adversities of life and the joys of life. I mean, what makes for a great marriage, basically? Okay, here's, you ready? Thank you. Two people are, thank you. Um, so here, here's just some ideas about how to have a great relationship. Number one, uh, Jesus should be at the center of that thing. Because if Jesus is at the center of that relationship, uh, then you're appealing to him over both of you as to what does God think, what does God want, and et cetera. That, that's totally different when you face issues, and you will face issues, uh, because it's what does the Lord want, and that brings great peace to your relationship. Number two, uh, stay in the Word of God together as a couple. Again, you're appealing to the Word of God for wisdom and insight, not to, well, as a man, this is what I think. That does not go well, trust me. Um, men, are you listening to me? Yes, sir. I have a point for you. Uh, point three is uh, she needs your shoulder, not your mouth. <laughs> Only the women laughed. And the men are like, what? Okay, what did I tell you? She needs your what? Shoulder, not your mouth. And what do you do with your mouth? You try to problem solve everything she brings to you. And she's looking at you going, what is he talking about? He just needs to listen to me. And she needs your shoulder. It took me 16 years to figure that one out. And it, yeah, uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, 
I'm a problem solver. Hey, babe, you bring me an issue, I will tell you A, B, pros, cons, assets, liabilities. She's like, I don't need any of that. I just listen. So I'm, this is a whole sermon series. Um, women, are you ready to listen to me? Again? You ready? Uh, he needs your respect above all else. That's what he needs. Because if you respect him, he will love you. And if you love her, she'll respect you. I mean, it's just kind of that cycle. And so respect him. Tell him you respect him. Um, never stop dating each other. Don't, well, I just dated her to get her. <laughs> no, no. Continue to date her. Uh, last night we went out for dinner. I, I let Liz pick the restaurant. I was shocked when I saw how much the items cost on the menu. Uh, I guess that's inflation. I'm like, wow. Uh, but we had a great time, sat outside, enjoyed each other. You know, dating each other. You can still do it. And you should do it. Uh, never stop doing romantic things. You know, be what they may. Uh, and never stop telling each other that you're in love with her, that you love her, and that you love him. Tell them. Um, uh, manage your money well. Why? Because 75% of marriages fall apart because they don't manage their money well. Manage the money, uh, and God will bless your marriage. Uh, be unified how to raise the children. Be on the same page. Because if you're not, it's going to be a hard road. Uh, be on the same page. Daily strive to serve each other. Be selfless toward each other. And I cannot tell you all the things that we do for each other because then we don't have our reward in heaven. Remember, Jesus said, you don't, don't let your right hand know what the left hand's doing. But we serve each other, uh, which means men, a vacuum cleaner, you know how to plug it in the wall, push the button. I'm just saying, ladies, do you know how to use a pair of pruners? Huh? Yeah, yeah. It's just like this. That's, that's it. You can do it. Uh, you cross over to each other's lives, help each other, etc. cetera. Uh, go to a Christian marriage conference occasionally. Fine-tune the marriage. It's good. Um, read books together or read, read a book about your marriage. I tell you, man, if she sees you reading a book on marriage, she's going to think great things about you. Are you hearing me? Men are not listening. Uh, uh, they're thinking, uh, what book? Uh, well, Love and Respect is a great book. Start there, and there's plenty others. Uh, and then confess your sins to each other. Well, I don't have any sin. <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah. If you don't believe you do as a, as a husband, just ask her. And she, she, she will tell you what the sin is. Uh, but you can keep the slate clear, you know? And then no bringing up dirty laundry you forgave her for. Because if you forgave her for something, you don't reach back into the closet and drag it out in an argument so you can win an argument by beating her up with this past evidence, right? Right? Not cool. These are just some things for a quality relationship. So do quality relationships just happen by themselves? No, they take a lot of what? Hard work. Two basic principles like those. Same thing for you as a Christian. Does a great relationship with Jesus just happen? Mm -mm. If you see somebody that really loves God and walks with God, that's a person who's disciplined to the foundational things of that relationship. And Christians come in all shapes and sizes. There's ones that are really in love with Jesus. There's ones that are getting there. And there's ones that are just starting out. There's ones that have walked away when they shouldn't have. They're, they're all different shapes and sizes. And John's telling this church uh, in Asia Minor, all the seven churches in Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey, that have been infiltrated by progressive false doctrine, decimated those churches. He's telling all the people that have been fighting against each other and fighting with each other and leaving church, Man, there's no brotherly love here. Which, If there's no brotherly love here, I'm sure you're not in love with Jesus. And so he's telling them how to get back into love with Jesus. So chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, he tells you what the book's going to be about. Uh, he's going he's to talk about fellowship. Because sin destroys fellowship between you and God. Uh, and the same thing with your marriage. If there's sin in your relationship, it's going to affect your intimacy with your wife or your husband. 
That's why he said, keep your slate clean when it comes to sin. Uh, when you get to chapter 2, verses uh, 3 and following, uh, he's going to continue uh, what he was talking about in chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 2, uh, where he was talking about fellowship with Jesus. Because he's talking to Christians. He's not talking to non-Christians. He's not talking to people who profess to be Christians, but they don't possess Christianity. He's, he's talking to Christians. And we know that because of the things that he says here. He, in the whole first chapter, he includes himself in his, what he says. We. It's we language. If he's talking to non-Christians, it would be you. And he's saying, no, we must. Well, 1 John 1, 9. He gave you nine things you should, you should do to stay in fellowship with Jesus. First John 1, 9. Remember First John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. You said you knew it. To forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So that was one of the nine things you need to do, stay in fellowship with Jesus. He's speaking to Christians. So can Christians sin? <laughs> yeah. Did you sin this week? How many? Well, I kept it on the low, you know, not much. Yeah, 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 yeah you did. Uh, so do those nine things we talked about in chapter uh, 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 2. But today he's going to switch, and he's going to talk about, uh, well, if you are in love with Jesus, what's that look like? Like, if you were to say, does Marty really love Liz? I mean, how, what's the evidence? Uh, if you were to ask Liz, how do you know that Marty loves you? She should be able to give you the evidences, right? You should be able to list these things. If you get a blank stare, not a good sign. What are the ways you know that you're in love with Jesus? So he's going to tell you three things you look for. Number one, uh, you the Christian. I'm, I'm not speaking to non-Christians today because the letter is written to Christians. Uh, he says, you the Christian, obey his commandments. That you obey what Jesus said. Verse 3, what does he say? Uh, here's what John says. Uh, and by this we know that we, remember, see the we language, the plural, we as Christians have come to know him. Uh, it's all conditional if we keep his commandments. And then he's going to circle back around in verse 5 and kind of say the same thing in a different way. Remember, he's over 90 years old. If you're over 90, you tend to say the same things over and over again and drives your grandchildren crazy, right? But you know what you're talking about. What's he talking about? Well, if, you, if you're in love with Jesus, you obey his command. So let me say it a different way. Verse 5, but whoever, as a Christian, keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected or matured. And by this we know that we're in him. Well, how do we know that we're in him? Well, because we follow him. So let's analyze what he says. The first way that you know that you're in love with Jesus is you obey his commands. Um, the very opening word there in verse 3 uh, is the word and. You can see this. That's a coordinating conjunction. I know you love grammar because you're at this church, and we study grammar, uh, don't we? Now, the word in Greek is kai, K-A-I, kai. Uh, it, uh, kai is a coordinating conjunction, and because it's there, because there was, uh, the original text of Greek had no uh, chapter divisions or verses, so it was just straight text. The chi is in there because he's coordinating with what he just said with what he's going to say. We means they hang together. It's not a different motif altogether. It's very similar. So if the, even in the last verses, verses 1, 5 through chapter 2, verse 2, he's talking about the nine ways a Christian maintains fellowship with Jesus, intimacy. He's now going to say, this is going to be similar to what I just said, but I need to add some more things to it. He's going to talk about that love relationship. And so it's, it's very connected that he's still talking to Christians, not non-Christians. This is very important. He says, by this we as Christians know that we've come to know him, which this means then, if he's talking to Christians, he's not talking about salvific knowledge, like redemptive knowledge, like when you became a believer. That's an event, right? The minute you trust Christ as your Savior and move toward him in faith, you are saved at that moment. That's knowledge of him as the Savior. He's not talking about that. 
He's talking to Christians who already know God, but he's not talking about saving knowledge. He's talking about experiential knowledge uh, from day to day. The, the word here for know, there's two words in Greek for know. There's oida, head knowledge, and ginosko, experiential knowledge. He uses ginosko here. And he says, we, th by this we know that we've come to know him. Ginosko, experiential knowledge. Uh, he's talking about experiencing God, walking with God. And how do you know if you're experiencing God and walking with him? He throws in a conditional clause. See the if statement? Well, how do you know if you've got this great relationship with Jesus? We said it's pretty simple. It's a conditional clause. If you keep his commandments, you've got a great relationship with him going on. Uh, how many have children? Great. Do they obey you in all that you say? <laughs> yeah, they don't. Why? Why don't they obey you? Sin. Simple, isn't it? It's sin. And it's, it's the same thing. When you become a Christian, your positional sin is forgiven before God, but you have that daily walk with God that has issues, right? And so you as a daughter or son of God can choose at any given time, I'm going to obey, I'm not obey. So as you're sitting here today and you're going to hear what the word of God calls you to do, when you leave here, you should be thinking to yourself, I got to do that. I'm a child of God. I need to do that. Uh, that is a person that's moving toward maturity. So the knowledge here is an experiential knowledge. If, if we look at this and say this is about redemption, and he's talking to non-Christians, and he's using this as a test for whether a person is saved or not, we have a huge theological issue because Christian, Christian salvation is then based upon performance. Well, how do you know that you're a believer? Well, you keep his commandments. Oh, really? Then my salvation is based upon what? Faith plus works. Question being, how would I know if I ever worked enough to ever be saved? Answer, I would never know. I would never know. Uh, this is, uh, flies in the face also of Ephesians 2.8, where Paul says this. For by grace you as a Christian have been saved through faith plus works. Does it say that? No. He said, uh, you didn't do this. It's not of yourself. Uh, what is salvation? Well, you don't work for it. What is it? It's a gift. It's a gift of God. He gave you a sinner the opportunity to be saved through faith in his son. It's a gift he gave you. You don't work for it. And then he adds on, because he knows we're hard-headed. It's not a result of works. And then in the Greek text, that, that, that statement there is called a henna clause, and it can be either purpose or result. And he throws this in to say, he throws this all in to tell you, if it was based on faith plus works, <laughs> we'd all be boasting about it. I mean, think, I mean, I'm a pastor of a church. I preach every Sunday. You know, I read the word for a living. It's awesome. You know, I'm saved by my faith. Plus, look at all my works. Does that matter? No, it doesn't matter. Because I'm not saved by, by all that stuff. I'm saved by the grace of God that I believed in the work of Christ for myself as a sinner, got saved, uh, and he saved me not based upon my performance. So we know then that based on all that kind of reasoning that John's not talking to non-Christians here. He's not saying, here's a test to see whether you're a Christian or not. That's not who he's talking to. He's talking to Christians, saying, how do you know if you know Jesus intimately? Well, you keep his word. How do you know your children are growing up and maturing as young men and women? Because they listen to you as the mom and the dad. Now, if they choose to be disobedient, can you look at your daughter and say, well, you're totally not mine? Is she still yours? Why are you quiet now? Yeah, yeah, she is still yours. So think about the concept of knowledge. Um, and 
John chapter 14, uh, it's interesting. Uh, John chapter 14, uh, in verse 7, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and notice what he says to them. He says to them, if you, speaking to the disciples, had known me, you got to ask yourself, didn't they know him? <laughs> yeah, they knew him. But he's saying, but you don't have a deep experiential knowledge of me. Well, why? He says, you would have known my father also. From now, uh, from now on, you know him and you have seen him. And then Philip is the brave one of the bunch. He steps forward and he needs to make a statement. Uh, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. And then Jesus says, um, Philip, uh, have I been so long with you and you have not come to know me? He who has seen me has what? Seen the Father. Then how do you say, show us the Father? I mean, Philip, your, your, your questioning is incongruous. Because Jesus says, I'm the, I'm the second member of the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. Yes, it's a, it's a mystery. But to see me here in fleshly form as the divine God-man is, is to see the reflection of the Father. You've seen me. You've seen me. You have to ask yourself, this is three, point, three years into Christ's ministry with the disciples. Okay, Are they saved or are they unsaved? They're saved. They're saved. So they knew God in a salvific sense, Savior, but at an experiential sense, there's things they didn't know. Same thing's true of you. There's things that you know about God to get saved, and then you spend the rest of your life trying to know Him better. Isn't the truth? I mean, it's, it's the way that it is. And so when John says, uh, this is how we know we've come to know Him intimately and have a great relationship with Him, we do what He says. That's what he's, uh, verse 5, whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. Or if you obey what Christ says, you're maturing in the faith. Uh, and then he says, by this we as Christians, remember, we speak in we. He's not talking about we as Christians and you as non-Christians. No, he's saying we as Christians, this is how we know that we are in him. He's not talking about in him, that prepositional phrase, in him, in a Pauline sense. When Paul says we are in Christ, he's saying redemptively. So there's two kinds of people. You're either outside of Christ, not a believer, or you're inside of Christ. There's only two kinds of people. And, and Paul uses this in a salvific sense, in a redemptive sense, to say, when you come to know Christ as your Savior, you go from being outside of Christ, cut off from Him, to being placed into Christ. That's where you want to be. How does that happen? Moment of faith. Moment of faith. But John is not Paul. Remember? If you want to analyze that love letter that your wife sent you, and you're studying it, or now it's not a letter. Back to my day, it was letters. Uh, you know, you're pouring over a word. Once you don't wonder what you meant by that. And do I ask her sister what she meant? No. Well, you laugh. I mean, no, I ask her. You know. And uh, same thing. So, what is John talking about when he talks about in him? He's not talking about redemption because he's talking about fellowship. Totally different. And so he says, uh, "How do we know that we are in him? Meaning, how do we know we have that deep relationship in him?" Uh, John chapter 15, uh, John uses the words similar to uh, what he's using here in First John. Uh, let's read what he says about the vine and the branches. Jesus, Jesus speaking to the disciples before his uh, arrest and crucifixion. And what does he tell them? He says, men, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he, the father, takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he, the father, prunes it. Why? Well, he wants it to bring more fruit, Right? says, you already, as my disciples, are clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. So you're saved. And then he gives them a challenge. What's he tell them to do? Abide in me. Uh, the Greek word is meno, uh, M-E-N-O. Uh, and it's the same word that John uses in 1 John because it's a fellowship word. He says, you abide in me. Have great fellowship in me. It's dependent upon you 
working on that relationship. Abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. You need to work at this. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he, he, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's all uh, intimate language. Notice the conditional clause. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch, dries up and they gather them and they cast them into the fire and they're burned. And then he says, but if you abide in me, have deep fellowship with me and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you wish that shall be done for you. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit. So you prove to be my disciples. He's not saying so that you prove to be a believer. Discipleship is a conditional thing. You count the cost. Salvation is an event that happens at the moment of faith. Discipleship is a whole other thing. I count the cost to be that disciple of Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, trust me, I've been in this passage many times over the years. I can tell you what people do with it. They will read it, and they will say, well, the branch was cut off. It was ineffective, and it was thrown into the fire. Lost her salvation, went to hell. Hmm? Did he say that there? Did he say that there? With, a, with a, that kind of accent? No, no, he did not say that there. And so what he's talking about, I, I said in a Greek class one day, I think it was my sixth year of Greek, uh, and we were talking about this passage, and we went through the lexical ramifications of the word fire. So does the word fire always mean hellfire? No. We started listening to all the etymological op opportunities with that word. Uh, he's not talking about uh, hellfire there. He's talking about relationship with Jesus. And if a person is a branch and they're cut off, how in the world, if that's a non-Christian, did they ever become part of Christ? You follow me? It's they were never part of Christ. So who's the branch? An, a believer who's not being obedient. And what's the fire about? He disciplines them. Why? Because he wants them to be productive. I mean, he talks about this in the book of Hebrews. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and disciplines. Sometimes God brings fire to your life to what? Well, get you moving. So he's talking about relationship here. So when he says, how do you know you're in love with Jesus? Well, how do you, how do you know you're in him? Well, how do you know you're a vine, the vine that's productive? Oh, well, I'm in him because I can see the fruit I'm producing. Are you being obedient to Christ? Are you, are you, are you studying his word and applying his word? That leads to great intimacy with Jesus. Show me somebody that walks intimately with God. I will show you somebody who's abiding with Christ at a very intimate level because they're obeying what he said. But we'll have people who will walk out of here this morning. They're like, I'm not doing any of that. Well, you know, a, a growing believer is saying, Lord, what can I do? What should I do? Number two, he says, if you are a Christian that's, that's really maturing in your faith, you won't be a hypocrite. <laughs> you ever met one of those? What is a hypocrite? So the word hypocrite, uh, it's a Greek term, uh, referred to uh, a person in a play that held a, held a mask in a Grecian drama. So they'd come out on stage, put a mask on, uh, and, and you know, it was you know, whatever part they were playing, but it wasn't really them. That became a great term for a person who plays games with God. It's a person who says one thing and does another. That never happens in D.C., never. <laughs> it's like, I can't even, almost not even process the news on a given day. I'm like, such a hypocrite. That, you know, you, you see the evidence of what the evidence is, and they're saying just the opposite of that. So he says here, uh, if you're a Christian that wants to grow up, then you're, notice what he says, you do. He says, the one, he's speaking to a Christian, the Christian who says, well, I have come to know him. But he does not keep his commandments. He's a what? He's a liar. He's a liar. Uh, and his truth is not in him. So, uh, you know, 
if you have come to know him, remember he's not talking about salvific, redemptive knowledge. That's an event. He's talking about a process, a relationship that you're working on, like your marriage. You're trying to get it to a deeper level. Well, how do you do that? You obey the foundational rules for a great marriage, like I just talked about. And then you grow that relationship. Here he's, he's talking about that as well. Because if, if, it's, if he's talking about test for a non-Christian, again, you have a problem because faith is then conditional again. But he says, uh, no, we, we've come to know him, but only when our life matches what the Bible says. Remember, Christians come in all shapes and sizes. There's those who know the Word of God and obey the Word of God. There's those who know the Word of God and they try hard to obey it, but they blow it sometimes. There's those who are just learning how to obey it, and there's those who hear it, and there's like, no way am I doing that. I, I'm, I, I'm carnal, and I love that sin. There, there's all kinds of Christians. But he's saying, if you, if you have a life where you say to other Christians around you, yeah, I walk with God, but they look at your life and go, oh, no, you don't, because your wife tell, life tells us the opposite, uh, then you need to get with the program. Um, here's a prayer go home today sometime get off alone it's a beautiful day outside boy it's actually sunny go outside sit in a nice chair and tell god show me my hypocrisy show me where my life does not match the scripture guess if you think god is slow in answering prayer he will show you this is where you're a hypocrite uh one day uh, when i was in california before i moved here i was uh, at the golf course where i had a membership and I was playing, having a great time with my friends. I, I knew the course well. I'd playing there for years. I get to the, the 10th hole, had to shoot over a river. It was down in a canyon. Used to freak me out as a young golfer because all I saw was the canyon. As I got better, it's like I didn't see the canyon because I knew I could hit it like 200 yards or whatever. So I'm standing there getting ready to tee off. The gardener came with his giant uh, machine to uh, you know, uh, mow the grass there, turned it off so we could tee off. But then we had to stop because there was a guy coming from the 18th hole across the bridge to our left, right? So we had to wait for him in case an errant shot, you want to hit the guy, right? It's a Christian thing. So we all waited there. So we're waiting there with the gardener. The guy's walking. He's pushing his cart, you know, with his golf clubs. And he's yelling, and he's screaming, and he's throwing his hand in the air, and etc. I'm like, man, what's his problem? He's not with anybody. He's by himself. He takes his golf cart as he's walking toward the bridge. He doesn't make it to the bridge, and he throws it off the cliff, you're at, you ever had a golf day like this? Uh, yeah. He throws his whole golf cart, you know, the handheld cart, off, and it, it just, bam, 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 down, down into the water of the river. And, then, and then, he, then he crosses the bridge by us, cussing and everything. I'm like, man, that guy's got issues. That guy needs, he needs Christ, you know? About that time, the gardener said this to me. He goes, uh, yeah, he's done that before. And then he said, and he's a pastor. I don't know him. <laughs> guy's got major issues. Don't you know that that guy, he's golfing by himself, throws his golf clubs, there goes the pings, and a couple thousand dollars in golf clubs. He didn't go retrieve them either. He's like, over oh, those demonic clubs. Don't you, know, don't you know that when he got to church on Sunday? Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Don't you know he was like that? I mean, if I was sitting in this church, I'm going to go, wait, dude, I saw you Friday. You know, I, I rebuke you. What a hypocrite. Can a pastor be a hypocrite? Not at this church. No. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's, the, it's a terrible thing to see a person who's a hypocrite, isn't it? Because it just compromised their faith. 
And so anyway, uh, that's why John says, if you were really in love with Jesus, there's not going to be a whole lot of hypocrisy about you. So ask God, show me my hypocrisy so I can get that cleared up. And then lastly, he says, if you're really in love with Jesus, you're going to live like Jesus. Verses 6 to 11. Verse 6, he says, the one who, who he says abides, and that's that same word in, 1 John, or in John 15, uh, to abide in Jesus, it's the word meno. It's the same thing. He, he says, if you say you abide in him, well, then he says, you ought to walk like him. I mean, it's just like common sense. If you say you follow Jesus, did you know the word Christian means little Christ? That's what it means. So if you say, I am a Christian, you are saying, I'm a little Christ. Well, that means what he said is what you do. So how do you know what he said? means my whole life I study him. This is a whole sermon series. It means I study Jesus. I study the Gospels. I read them over and over and over again. Why? I'm asking myself, how did my Lord operate on a given day, and I need to do the same kind of thing when they call me names, when they say I hurt their feelings, when they have huge issues that need to be addressed, when it's been a long, hard day, and they knock on my door or whatever. Do I still talk to him? I mean, how do I function? But we could spend a whole, I mean, the rest of the year talking about what did Jesus do? How did he walk? But notice how he limits it here. He says, walk in the same manner as Jesus. Um, he's going to relate it to the, the second commandment, the second greatest commandment. So we all know the first greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So it is okay to use your mind as a Christian. In fact, you should, because Christians are thinking people, all right? And then Jesus said the greatest, second greatest commandment is equal to that. It is to love your neighbor as you love yourself, you know, and well, then the question was, well, then uh, who's my neighbor? And because, you know, like there's some people I don't like, right? That, that was the context of that whole conversation. And Jesus says, everybody's your neighbor. Doesn't matter their ethnicity. Doesn't matter who they are. They're, they're you know, love them. So John's going to tap into that commandment. Well, how do I know that? Well, that's what he's going to say in verse seven. Notice what he says in second John or First John chapter 2, 7. It says, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I'm writing you a new commandment to you, which is true in him uh, and you, because the darkness, darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Well, what is the old commandment? And what is the new commandment? Uh, it's to love each other. That's what was missing in their church. Show me a church that's fighting it out, and I will show you a church that they, they do not love Christ. That's the problem. Because if you love Christ, you're going to love your brother. And so he says, uh, I'm not giving you anything you haven't heard before. Well, what's the old commandment? Leviticus 19.18 is the old commandment. Where in the Mosaic law, in the book of Leviticus, it was written that you should love other people. And then he's going to come around and say, I'm going to take that old commandment and I'm going to give you in a new form, but it's the same kind of motif that you need to love each other. Because see, these churches were disintegrating because there wasn't love there. And he says, you need to love each other. And if you're in love with the Lord, then you'll be in love with each other. It's, it's an old commandment. It's really a new commandment. And then he throws in, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What does that cryptic statement mean? Uh, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, if you skip down, he says, the world, the evil world, is passing away in the lust of it. The world is passing away. So that's an eschatological statement about the end time. This is how I function and make it in a society where I watch, I'm watching the whole society. I used to say they were going off the cliff. I think they cleared the cliff a long time ago. They have thrown logical reasoning to the wind, moral reasoning to the wind, everything, law and order to the wind, everything. It's unbelievable. I sit and think, do they not see what they are doing? 
Yeah, well, some of them do, some of them don't. Well, how do I make it as a Christian? Because I understand uh, chapter 2, verse 17, that the world is passing away and the lust of it, meaning it's not going to be here forever. Why? Because the king's coming. Did you hear me? The king's coming. And when the king comes back, well, then we got shalom. We got peace. We got righteousness. We got holiness. We got logical thinking. We got awesomeness because the king is coming. So when he says darkness is passing away and the true light is shining, already shining, he already shining. How? He's saying, when you live a life of love toward other people, brotherly love, you are shining the light of the coming kingdom. You follow me? This is super important. When you show love to other people, you're giving them a taste of the king in the kingdom. You have to stop and ask yourself, does my life give people a taste of the king and the kingdom. Because I can tell you what they see around D.C., rhetoric, mean rhetoric, mean-spirited, deception, lying. I mean, you name it, that's what you see here. What does the culture need above all things? People that are in love with Jesus. And because they're in love with Jesus, they love other people. And they don't care who you are, where you came from, how smart you are, how much money you don't have, what kind of education you have or don't have. They love you because, well, you're the neighbor you're the neighbor. So how do you know you're really in love with Jesus? You live like Jesus. How did he live? He loved everybody around him. Is that you? John closes by telling you there's two kinds of Christians. Verse 9, uh, he says the one, the one Christian who says in his, that he is in the light, mm, yet he's a hypocrite. Why? Well, because he hates his brother. Well, he is in the darkness until now. And the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Um, he then says, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because uh, in darkness, the darkness has blinded his eyes. He's speaking to Christians, not non-Christians. Is it possible for a Christian to not like another Christian? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a softball question. Yeah, let's make it personal. Is there another Christian that you have an issue with? Mm, no one's going to answer that question. But is there another Christian you don't like? Well, Probably. Well, you might have left another church because of them. Well, you can't believe what they did to me. You can't believe what they said to me. You can't, they broke a confidence. Or, I mean, I've heard all the stories. But he says there's two kinds of Christians. There's a Christian who uh, says they love other Christians, but their life is compromised because they have a hatred to another Christian. And if you have a hatred toward another Christian, then you're not in love with Jesus as you should be. And you're just stumbling through the darkness. Because if you have hate in your heart toward another Christian... Well, then that leads to a whole bunch of other sins, and you stumble all over them. Like, what other sins might come from that? Gossip. Gossip. What else? Anger. Anger. Jealousy. On and on. You stumble all over these things. But if you have love for Jesus in your heart, and you love other people, and you forgive them for the things that they've done and said against you, well, then you have a rich peace. And that, that gives them a taste of the king and the kingdom. Um, there was a couple at my last church that did a lot of really mean things to me and my wife. I mean, terrible things. Uh, and when they finally left the church, um, I don't know, maybe a year went by, and I was in a Walmart one day shopping, and I saw her at a distance. And I didn't like her because of things she did to me and my wife and the church and my children, things she said, mean, mean. And I saw her, and I, had, I thought to myself, I have two options. <laughs> I can go out into the plant section and disappear. <laughs> or I can walk toward her uh, and embrace her. Guess which one I did. And I'm not doing this to commend myself because this was a very hard thing to do because of what this lady did. Uh, I decided to walk toward her and her husband. And 
the first thing I did is I hugged her and I hugged him. And I told him I loved him and missed him. But that was not easy to do because they were not nice people. And they never said they were sorry for the things that they did. But if you think about the scripture, it's like you have to put it into practice, do you not? Because if I, if I say, I do not like you, I will never forget what you did. I will never forget what you said about my son. That will, not, that will bring things evil in my heart and I will stumble all over them. You have to free yourself and say, no, I will love them as Christ did. He would have hugged them. I must hug them. God, help me to hug them. Not too tightly. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, are you really in love with Jesus? If you know him, are you really in love with him? Uh, if you want to improve that love, you've got three things you need to do to fine-tune that love. And if you don't know Jesus, wow, he's waiting for you to reach for the doorknob of your life and open it and invite him in, and he will save you, and it'd be the greatest day of your life. Why don't we stand and pray? Lord, we bow before you. Uh, thank you for uh, speaking to us, uh, speaking to me, uh, for challenging us and challenging me uh, to grow in the faith, to mature in the faith. Help us to um, love those around us that are unlovely, uh, to love them as you would love them. Forgive us when we haven't. Uh, may we show signs of love. May we speak words of love. Uh, to build the body of Christ. And may we show love to those about us, even though they are lost in darkness. Uh, may we see them as, uh, as people who need you as Savior and to love them as you would. And we do pray for our church that it would be a church known for love, uh, but not a squishy love that sacrifices truth, but one that holds on to truth above all things, but loves people in the process. And we pray for the non-Christians among us that you would, uh, you would lovingly guide them to the cross of Christ wherein they can be saved. May that happen for them today. And we just count it a privilege to know you and walk with you. May our church continue to be a place uh, of great refuge for those who are hurting and need love. And may we be a church that shows love to the community about us. In Christ's name, amen.